Welcome to Smith Weekly Discussions, an occasional program for our readers and listeners of Smith Weekly Research. Please note this program is a private discussion and everything contained herein is for entertainment and educational purposes only. With that, we hope you're in a comfortable position along with your favorite beverage to enjoy the discussion. Before we get into our discussion today, we want to say thanks for the questions coming from our audience at Smith Weekly, including at Merman8562, at Plainview Danny, The Gravedigger, Sum Sum Fleege, Philip N, Jacob L, Clarine J, and Andy F. We have on Rohan Reddy, Senior Research Associate of Global X Funds. Of course, Global X provides a number of ETFs on the U.S. markets. Uh, Rohan is one of the managers of the URA Uranium ETF. The fund is listed on the New York Stock Exchange under the symbol URA. Rohan, thank you for coming on. Thanks for having me. So, Rohan, I want to take a, a step back for a moment, and if you would, can you give the audience an overview uh, of your background? Sure. So my name is Rohan Reddy. I'm a research analyst with uh, Global X. I've been here for close to four years now. Uh, and throughout that period, we've seen explosive growth in our firm uh, in terms of assets and uh, our breadth and reach globally. Uh, we are best known for our thematic uh, commodity-based international and our income funds. Uh, we have about $10 billion in assets as a firm, uh, and recently, last year, uh, we were acquired by a Korean asset manager called Murray uh, Global Investments, and uh, they bought it as a strategic investment, uh, meaning that you know now we have the support of a large global asset manager to broaden our distribution reach uh, and further resources in order to create intelligent and unexplored solutions like we have with funds like our uranium ETF. And uh, Rohan, can you go into the and in, in a little bit into your background uh, before you came to Global X? Uh, sure. So uh, this was my first job out of uh, undergrad college. Um, I did attend New York University, NYU, uh, majored in economics. Uh, really sort of looked at Global X as a firm that was on the forefront of the ETF uh, industry revolution uh, and decided that you know, between the fit of the firm uh, and my background that it could be a good fit. And so that's where Global X and I joined forces. Okay. Well, that sounds great. I appreciate the information. So what are your thoughts on the uranium market today and, and what's kind of your overall view of uh, both the uranium market and where nuclear energy stands today? It's an exciting time to be uh, part of the uranium market today and you know, to evaluate it. Uh, but to be uh, you know realistic, it has been certainly challenging over the past five or six years as a uranium investor. There have been uh, brief pivots where the prices have done well. Uh, but then a lot of moments where uh, the prices have come back to earth and uh, they have witnessed declines. We do like the long-term growth story of uranium. Uh, one of the things that uranium, you know, is a sort of a clean energy source does bring to the table is that as a lot of countries, and we saw this at the Paris Climate Accord a few years ago, many countries around the world are trying to explore uh, cleaner alternatives to reduce their fossil fuel print uh, around the globe. And so what that's done is that 
as a lot of countries are moving away from oil and gasoline and traditional sources of energy, uh, they are exploring different solutions for that. And one of those has been uh, nuclear-based sources of energy, uh, uranium. And so we have been seeing this as a thematic story and a global macro structural shift where uranium as a commodity is becoming uh, more and more demanded by the market uh, based on regulations, uh, political efforts, uh, and also this need to kind of address climate change. And so uh, we are pretty excited about the outlook for uranium, uh, but just like any other commodity, it has uh, you know been affected by the supply and demand dynamics. And so we have seen a lot of these powerhouse countries that do uh, you know lead the way in terms of uranium production, namely uh, Kazakhstan. Uh, start to look for solutions in order to reduce their production. And so we think ultimately the key catalyst that's going to be needed for the next few years is going to be uh, balancing the market in order to support uranium prices. And and how do you see, speaking of supply-demand fundamentals, uh, looking from a global view, what do you see kind of as the, as the kind of the next steps uh, to see higher prices in the uranium market? So from the supply side, this has arguably been the biggest driver behind some of the weakness within the uranium space. There's just been uh, such great technological advances and a lot of investment in uranium over the past 10 years or so that it's become easier than ever to pull uranium out of uh, uh, the ground. And so to bring it to market is you know, a lot easier than it was before. Unfortunately, that sort of flooded the market with a lot of cheap supply. And so what you've seen is that prices have fallen 60, 70% uh, since the end of the commodity super cycle. Uh, and so we think at some point, you know, even though there has been this technological advance that has taken place, uh, ultimately prices will need to revert back to some sort of long-term medium average. Uh, we don't think necessarily that it's going to go back to those days of uh, what, what it was in the commodity super cycle back in 2010, 2011. Um, but we do see some sort of normalized middle ground occurring, uh, something in between what we're at now and uh, what it was at, at uh, that high point there. And so on the supply side, you know, we are seeing countries like Kazakhstan uh, take a lot of efforts and companies like Camco take a lot of efforts to uh, reduce the amount of production uh, that they're supplying to the market. If you think a few years ago, um, you know, Kazakhstan did say that uh, they were trying to reduce their output by about 10% or so. Uh, and then we did see a couple of uh, key mine closures from Camco. And so even though we have seen Kazakhstan to start this year say that they may, they may increase uh, their uranium production a little bit this year, these are still pretty monumental efforts in order to try and balance the market. And in some cases, these companies and countries have actually uh, just outright come out and said that they're trying to you know, support prices a little further. On the demand side, I think the part of what's compounded the issue here behind the weakness has been uh, the fact that emerging markets have not done well over the past few years. Uh, currencies have gotten hit quite hard, and so purchasing power uh, has taken a bit of a dive. Uh, countries like China, which are amongst uh, the biggest potential growth drivers of the uranium industry, uh, have been experiencing both political, economic, and market weakness uh, that sort of limited their ability to 
uh, drive the uranium market from the demand side. And so as we see some of these issues starting to get resolved, uh, we think that the demand side of the equation will start to come into play. Uh, you have seen, you know, growth in nuclear reactors take hold, uh, mainly out of China, which is really leading the effort there, but also globally, uh, you know, out of both developed markets and emerging markets. And so that's why we're excited about the uh, future of the uranium market. Yeah, yeah, I would say, uh, given uh, uranium was at the uh, spot price was around 136, 140 a pound back uh, 2007, if memory serves me correctly, and it went back down to 18 and uh, was it uh, 2016, if I recall, if my numbers are right. Uh, so that's uh, almost close to a 90% haircut. Um, what's what's your view uh, looking back into the U.S. for a moment? Uh, tell us what your thoughts are on this Section 232 petition uh, that's been brought by some of the U.S. producers. What's your take on that? And then also tell us what your thoughts are as far as nuclear energy within the United States. So some of the efforts that, you know, for security reasons have been brought about in terms of, you know, limitations on that side. Uh, if these measures were to pass, and, you know, we have seen this administration in the U.S. be uh, pretty forward and out front about uh, trying to be more conservative with the way they approach, you know, uranium imports, uh, this is an area that we think, you know, similar to the trade wars and the tensions there, uh, you know, the worst case scenario is that this could have, you know, somewhat of a deep uh, issue within the overall uranium market in terms of the demand from the U.S. Uh, but similar to the trade wars, uh, we think that worst case scenario is not going to be achieved and there is going to be some sort of, you know, middle ground achieved where both uh, sides and parties get uh, what they want there. In terms of growth out of the U.S., uh, I think what we have been seeing is that even though international markets have been driving a lot of the growth within uranium over the past uh, five to 10 years, especially with a lot of the uh, you know, publicity surrounding the move away from fossil fuels and into bigger countries like China and the nuclear reactors, I still do think that the United States will be one of the uh, key players in terms of you know, demanding uranium in the future. It has been muddled by this issue around security and some of the uh, regulations and, you know, that section that you uh, discussed. And so, you know, ultimately, when we see a cleaner regulatory, legal and political picture, uh, we think that the long term average or, you know, annualized growth figure uh, is going to be somewhat uh, larger than it would be, you know, right now where expectations are not great because of the fact that these you know restrictions are coming into place. Give us your thoughts on SMRs. What's your, what's your thoughts on how that might impact uh, some of these advanced nations like the United States? Sorry, could you define the SMRs? Uh, the small modular reactors, uh, for example, uh, New Scale Power out of Oregon. Uh, there's a number, uh, Rolls-Royce uh, over in Europe. Uh, there's a number of different companies around the world that are exploring basically commercializing uh, small modular reactors. And so, Essentially, if you go back and you look at nuclear submarines and the applications in military uh, going back 50 years, you, you pretty much had nuclear powered uh, vessels, uh, including submarines that uh, had these small scale down reactors on a military application. But now there's a, a push for a number of companies to start uh, looking at deploying these 
smaller scale reactors that can theoretically be built in a manufacturing facility and shipped to the site and consist of maybe, uh, in the case of new scale, a 60 megawatt uh, plant. What's your thoughts on that? And, and do you see that kind of getting a grip and, and moving forward maybe over the next uh, five to eight years? Uh, yes, exactly. Um, so, yeah, I, I do think this, especially as the technology within the uranium space starts to improve, uh, similar to we run a lithium ETF as well, where uh, the technology behind that has enabled the size of uh, those lithium batteries to be able to be put into things like cars and uh, you know the power circuits and things like that. Uh, we think that as the technology does start to improve uh, in the uranium space, along with you know a cleaner picture on the security side of how that's going to be regulated, um, that ultimately uh, technologies like this uh, that are uranium based can actually be extrapolated. Uh, into areas like manufacturing, uh, potentially even you know smaller power sources that may uh, not need uh, sort of a dirty energy source like an oil or something like that. And we think that eventually, as those start to get adopted, this could be something that could be a big growth driver for the industry. I think five to eight years from now, you know, that might be a somewhat aggressive time frame given that the uranium market tends to move pretty slowly in terms of you know uh, growth on uh, the way it's sort of seen within the regulatory body's eyes uh, i think this is something where you could start to see much more of that scale uh, come to market over the next say 15 to 20 years and you know similar to the way that autonomous vehicles have sort of transformed uh, the vehicle space um, which are sort of starting to take hold now. Uh, we think that this is going to be something that, you know, if you look out 15 to 20 years from now, could actually transform the way that the uranium space is being perceived. How about uh, your thoughts on other energy forms uh, competing with nuclear? Uh, when you look at the, the broad spectrum of, of coal and, and oil and nat gas and geothermal and hydro and wind and solar, when you look at all those, uh, obviously they all kind of have a role and part to play at some point uh, in an energy mix. But how do you think? What do you think the nearest uh, competition or threat to uh, to nuclear is uh, in the energy space? Uh, both both looking at a country like China and also looking at a country like the United States. That's a great question. It is one that we get asked quite often, which is the first part. You know. Why has uranium been slightly slower to adopt in some of these developed markets? Uh, and then what could be the potential threat to uh, you know, uranium as another energy source going forward? Part of why I think we've seen a slower adoption of uranium than has been expected over the past few years uh, has been that oil and gas prices have been so low for so long. Uh, part of you know one of the ramifications of the shale revolution in the United States is that uh, gas prices and oil prices, which are traditional sources of energy that have been used, are now cheaper than ever. And so the incentive to move to a different type of an energy source that requires a bigger upfront investment like a uranium isn't quite there like you would have expected it to be right around the time, you know, when uranium prices were, say, 118 per ounce or something like that. Uh, we think that eventually as uh, oil and gas prices do start to normalize that uh, you could see more of an incentive to move into uh, uranium-based power sources going forward. But I think that's part of what slowed down this cycle. 
in terms of where we see sort of the bigger threats to uranium, I think the way it's being marketed and pitched right now uh, to a lot of potential uh, customers is, you know, we can be your clean energy source for a fairly cheap price. I think the potential threat to that in the future could be other types of alternative energy sources like solar and wind. Uh, those are the ones that I definitely have on my my radar more so than others. The thing with solar and wind that's kind of kept them away from the uranium competition right now is that they are still relatively expensive compared to uh, you know other forms of alternative energy, and so you know it's part of why you haven't seen both the industrial and the retail side adopted further. Uh, is just because of the expense and not just the upfront expense, but the ongoing maintenance expense that it would cost to kind of continue using that source of energy. If those costs were to come down and if you were to see aggressive subsidies globally or uh, sort of kickbacks globally from the government to its citizens uh, in other emerging markets and developed markets to say, hey, if you used uh, you know, solar and wind, uh, we'll give you rebates on that. That's where you could start to see more uh, threats to the uranium market uh, is just, you know, in terms of all else equal, which sort of energy source should we go with from a pricing standpoint? Uh, that's where solar and wind could come into play. However, I do think those concerns may be mitigated by the fact that we have seen a ton of upfront investment already been made by a lot of countries. Uh, there's not only a lot of nuclear reactors that are currently in place uh, in terms of those that are in service, uh, but we also are seeing a ton that are under construction. Um, so China is probably you know the world's biggest uh, constructor of nuclear reactors right now, and it would be hard to envision them sort of you know abandoning abandoning the growth prospects of that. And so. I think as you start to see more investment being made, that will be more of an indicator that say, hey, uh, even though solar and wind and you know biofuels and other types of other clean energy sources are uh, competition, um, they may not uh, have the same type of impact that uh, they could have had this initial investment not been made by a lot of these countries. So what's your thoughts on a situation where you have wind and solar is, is kind of really popular in the United States, but yet it doesn't quite solve the, the wind's not blowing and the sun's not shining and the inefficiencies and the intermittent uh, style of these two renewable sources and wind and solar, and then also the usable lives of these components and the maintenance, as you mentioned, uh, that goes on with these types of energy sources. And then last, the sheer space consumption of solar and wind compared to what it takes for those to get anywhere close to a one gigawatt plant, uh, nuclear plant that, that sits and produces baseload power. What's your, what's your thoughts on the ability of renewables like wind and solar to be able to replace baseload at the type of scale and sheer efficiency of nuclear? Yeah, that's a great question too. So I'll give you uh, you know an anecdotal example of uh, kind of some of the challenges uh, that we've seen on that front. We do also run as part of our sort of alternative energy suite of ETFs, we do run a yield co ETF as well. A lot of the underlying energy sources as part of that yield co ETF are in the wind and solar space. And the way this yield co ETF was designed was that 
it was supposed to take part. It's an income vehicle, sort of similar to the master limited partnership side of the oil and gas space, which is it was pitched as an income vehicle that, you know, was supposed to take part in this big growth in uh, solar and wind. And, you know, as those cash flows started to increase and people started to adopt it more and, you know, those concerns about prices and efficiency started to go away and uh, customers around the world were to adopt it, uh, that the cash flows would start to rise uh, incrementally to the point where this could start to be a stable dividend you could count on. Unfortunately, that didn't necessarily play out partly because of the fact that uh, there were these concerns in place. Um, there were a lot of issues about, you know, countries that were worried about, uh, you know, if the sun wasn't shining, if the wind wasn't blowing enough, would we have to support that with additional infrastructure to be able to continue powering, uh, you know, our energy? And so that sort of alleviated some of the issues for, uh, you know, investors who were thinking, well, if we can sort of not count on uh, some of that there, then how are these governments going to uh, you know, approach this space? And so what we did see is that the demand growth side of the equation uh, hasn't been growing as much from that side on the solar and wind uh, part as much as we expected because of some of these efficiency issues and pricing issues. I think in terms of, you know, as you related to uranium uh, and the way we think about uh, that power source and the amount required to supply sort of like a nuclear reactor, I find it really hard uh, to, to conceive that that level of energy could be supported by, uh, you know, a solar or a wind type of, uh, you know, power source just because of the amount of energy and time it would take and the efficiency needed that just isn't there today. Could it be something that, say, 20, 30 years from now may technologically advance to that point based on, you know, scientific uh, advances and stuff like that, potentially. But I think based on where we are now, if you're looking at just, say, a straight nuclear reactor, uh, you know, that's an area where uranium is kind of in its own place in terms of uh, having a monopoly on that side of the equation. That goes back to that point that we were discussing before. If these uh, companies and countries start to make a lot of investment in those nuclear reactors, that's really a strong positive tailwind for uranium because it basically is saying that these countries are committing themselves at least to some partial or maybe even majority uh, use of energy in the form of uranium. Okay. Well, yeah, I appreciate the uh, the comments on that. Well, I want to move on to some other stuff uh, Tell us about the URA ETF. Uh, give us the total assets that are uh, in place there, uh, maybe the fund fees, and why you think that the URA fund is representative of the uranium market and also the nuclear industry. Yeah, so it's um, the URA ETF that we've run. It's been around since 2010, has a pretty long uh, track record. Um, it has about $250 million in assets now. Um, it is pretty representative of the way the uranium industry is con constructed in terms of it holds both the miners of uranium, those who are actually producing it, but it also holds some of those nuclear power-based companies that are sort of exposed to uranium. Uh, and so, you know, that this is a pretty good side to be on in terms of it reduces the volatility that comes with, uh, you know, buying just those uranium pure play uh, miners and so, sort of the, as we've seen with the commodity super cycle and the move away from that all the way down to 18. Um, 
what some of the issues that can arise with that is that a lot of these they're sort of small cap and uh, mid cap uh, junior miners is that they can be quite sensitive to the price of uranium and so by including the rest of the value chain in terms of those nuclear reactors and end uh, customers, uh, what we do here is that we A, limit the volatility, but also B, are capturing sort of that full full uh, customer chain in terms of, you know, who's actually buying the uranium and not just who's actually selling it at the spot or the forward price. And what's what's the size of the fund right now and, and what is the uh, the annual fee on it? Yeah, so it's about 250 million in size U.S. dollars, uh, and the fee um, is around 69 basis points. You know, the fee relative to uh, some other, you know, broad market passive indexes might be considered a little high, say. However, uh, this doesn't take into account the fact that a lot of these markets that we're going into are fairly illiquid markets. Uh, in which we have to buy up as the fund provider a lot of the you know underlying holdings in those local markets and sort of deal with uh, the trading aspect behind it. Uh, and so you know we cover that as the firm, and uh, that could, that partly explains you know why the fee is slightly higher on the URA ETF. Um, we have seen this you know used as a combination of a couple things. Our institutional investors are using it as a buy and hold strategy to take part in. Uh, a lot of the themes that we, we've talked about on this podcast with, um, you know, the growth in the uranium industry. And then we have seen some of those traders uh, who, you know, who have shorter holding periods go into and out of the ETF opportunistically. One of the beauties of uh, having URA in the ETF form uh, is that this is, you know, one of the ETF industry shining moments where, the underlying markets are actually more illiquid than the ETF itself. Uh, and so the ETF is actually providing like a liquid sort of price discovery vehicle uh, for investors who are trying to get exposure to the uranium theme and the rest of the value chain uh, without having to actually go into some of those, uh, you know, more sophisticated and uh, non-U.S. domestic markets like uh, you know, in Asian markets or Australian markets and areas like that. So Rohan, uh, the AUM dropped uh, kind of since uh, kind of mid eighteen, mid eighteen or early eighteen. It, it dropped by a by a, a notable amount. Um, is this a reflection? Do you think on the sentiment in the sector, or do you think it's a result of the new adjustments and holdings approach by the ETF? Um, so a combination of a couple factors, uh, both of them that you mentioned. So, you know, I think one of the concerns on the fundamental side was that, uh, as we kind of mentioned, that uh, peak to trough move of uranium prices and sort of the power of some of those big miners like Camco and, uh, you know, countries like Kazakhstan, if they were to ever change policy, um, and, you know, revert back to higher production levels. We did see Kazakhstan come out and say at the beginning of 2019 that they did, uh, you know, envision seeing higher production. That could potentially uh, dampen prices on the uranium side, and so that could potentially, uh, you know, have somewhat of a negative overall effect on uh, some of those miners within this space. It's possible that, uh, you know, some of the outflows could be reflected uh, on that side with some of the fundamentals. Okay. Well, I want to want to make a few comments on that, and then I want to get into some some uh, some other questions uh, from our audience and and some of the 
some of the heartaches that they've had uh, being in the sector and, and in the uranium investment community. You know, I can kind of see that uh, some of the components outside of the uranium sector, and that, that I mean uh, producers and developers and explorers, uh, but outside of that, you know, you do have the phys- a couple physical funds uh, that hold uranium, uh, namely uh, Yellow Cake PLC and also uh, uranium participation. And then, of course, you have now Kazataprom is listed uh, in London and you have uh, Cameco and you have even I can think of uh, probably maybe two other uh, larger producers that have reasonable reasonable size for the fund uh, energy fuels in the United States and, of course, Paladin in Australia. Um, and then also I see that there are some construction components to it. I think uh, Floorcorp uh, in the U.S. is is one of those, and there's there's some con, uh, construction contractors that that deal with uh, nuclear on that side. And then of course you have some of the utilities. Probably most of those you would probably look to the U.S. Exelion, uh, Dominion, Southern, um, those companies. So I can kind of see how you might structure some of uh, that side of it. The audience is curious to know if if there is a way with with your holdings and the restrictions, um, which I think it's possible uh, in my opinion, but I'd like to get your thoughts on it. Would the ETF consider going back to a pure play uranium ETF, or is that pretty much out of the cards? And if and if it is out of the cards. What do you think is kind of the allocation towards that uranium side of things? And that, that I mean, of course, uh, producers, uh, developers, and uh, explorers. And would there, would there be the, the option as, as you guys start to run up on some of these uh, limits, you know, 10% or 8% or 5% or whatever it may be, depending on where you're at, what company and, and what jurisdiction, wouldn't the fund have the, the leeway to be able to adjust holdings as those limits were approached to make sure that they stay in compliance. And given given the market is uh, the total market cap of the entire sector for uranium probably consists of somewhere around 10 to 12 billion today. And most of that is Cameco and Kazataprom. Obviously, as this market grows, which uh, it seems like it could really only grow uh, at this point, uh, the market caps would improve, liquidity would improve, so that problem would probably start to go away as you got into a bull market. And so, w- would the fund have the leeway to be able to sell some positions to make sure that they stay within those regulatory limits and just kind of readjust as as things move? Well, we've got to ask you, uh, Rohan, uh, just just to cover some of the audience questions. So we've got a knuckleball for you. Are you short that you are a fund? I, I just wanted to ask. Uh, so on on, an, on another topic, and, and again, some of the looking at some of the comments that came across. Uh, and again, we we've done. You know, I don't know uh, how much you know about us, but we've done quite a bit of work on the sector and have uh, really done a deep dive uh, all the way through it, uh, fuel cycle and and everything, supply demand, individual reactor consumptions, the whole mess. And some folks, some folks really got irritated when the pure play disappeared, and some of the holdings readjustments that occurred, uh, more or less twice, and some of these rebalancing and stuff. And and some of the folks were, were asking for your your employment, and and some of the other managers' employment. I don't understand why you guys are still still have a job there. So you can kind of get a flavor for some of the people that are irritated about what's what's kind of happened with the ETF. And as you said, the ETF is is a very large fund in this sector. And given we're at the bottom of this market, uh, your guys' uh, assets under management are, are quite substantial for this sector. And, and uh, you can start to understand the liquidity issues that come with that. So as 
the uranium funds are coming into the sector, uh, there's been a number of private equity and even some uh, listed funds. Uh, I would just reference Geiger Counter in London. What are your thoughts on some of these funds starting to come in? Uh, I think there was another one, Uranium Trading Corp, which has not uh, actually got there as far as a listed company yet. But what are your thoughts on some of these companies that are starting to take interest? And why should investors really consider URA over some of the alternatives uh, like the physical funds and the public and private listed uh, uranium equity funds? Well, the I think anytime you start to see uh, other types of funds enter the space, that's a good sign. Uh, anytime there's success within a market uh, in terms of you know the ability to potentially profit in terms of you know either on the long or short side, uh, that is going to bring about competition, and we do actually see. You know, in terms of the thematic growth side of the equation with the industry, uh, that growth in the private side is really beneficial because it shows that uh, longer term investors with longer holding periods, you know, on the private side, it's not like, uh, you know, say on, on the public side or with a liquid ETF, uh, that is locked in money that, you know, is supposed to be there for uh, years in time. And so that shows that there is confidence in the growth uh, of the uranium industry. In terms of, you know, why should investors put money into one over the other? I think it comes back always to the diversification. Um, you know, if you do want to be diversified and you want to invest uh, mainly in a beta type of approach to uranium, uh, the ETF or the diversified type of investment approach to it uh, is, you know, probably your preferred option because you're uh, rather than making, you know, an idiosyncratic bet on a company, uh, you're making a systematic beta type of uh, bet on the entire market. If you like one of the companies over the other, uh, you probably want to go, you know, with the private equity type of approach or direct equity in terms of, you know, buying up that one type of stock uh, of the company that you like. And so, you know, we have seen both of those approaches be employed. Uh, and I think overall for the industry, you know, as uh, someone involved in the uranium markets and, uh, you know, in the investment community behind it, adding more options is always better than having less. Uh, you know, we don't want to be the only game in town. Uh, we are, you know, one of the, the few ETFs out there, uh, and we do offer that type of ETF vehicle approach with the liquidity on top of it that uh, doesn't come with the underlyings. But it's good to have, you know, both. Uh, that direct listing approach, the private side approach, you know, the fund approach, maybe the physical commodity approach as well. Uh, and so what this allows investors to do is basically make their bet in terms of which way they want to go. And so I think what we've seen for our ETF is the growth on our side, uh, you know, has been for investors looking to make sort of a, uh, you know, broad market bet on uranium uh, in terms of, uh, you know, how that market is going to be uh, approached and perceived going forward and the growth of it. But, uh, you know, if you do like certain companies and would you know, add, like to add liquidity into certain companies and then, you know, take ownership and try and build it from the ground up, that's where the private side could come into place. Uh, we have seen a lot of money overall go into private, uh, you know, equity funds and in infrastructure as a whole. And, you know, that is a little different from uranium, but, uh, it just goes to show that, you know, a lot of money is going into these types of vehicles that, 
uh, you know, are more longer term in nature. And so if that money starts to build within the uranium space, as you mentioned before, market cap right now, if some of the public side is like 10 to 12 billion, you know, if that starts to build going forward, you could see an industry really on the you know flip side of the growth phase where it has a lot more runway to go. Right. And I think last time, last cycle, it, it was the the total sector cap was was well over 100 billion. I don't have the exact number in front of me, but uh, it was quite a quite a substantial move. And it's really interesting because it's it's a space that provides the fuel to the nuclear industry. And so uh, while you and I both agree there's plenty of uranium around in the world, what there is a significant lack of is the ability to bring that out of the ground, put it through the fuel cycle, contract it and get it into the reactors. That's that's where the bottleneck occurs, is that ability. And of course, that ability uh, coincides with price. And obviously, you mentioned earlier, uh, the the price has got to go higher. And that incentive price, uh, from what we see, is certainly north of $50 a pound, um, in some cases, uh, quite a bit higher than that. Um, and then, of course, you got the recontracting uh, debacle that's that's coming down the pipe where you have a number of existing contracts that are coming off and a quite a substantial contracting cycle coming up in the next couple of years. And so it's, it's going to be interesting to see how that kind of goes and, and, and how things start to look uh, as things wear on, including this year with the Section 232 decision coming up here pretty soon. On, on allocation, I want to ask you about that. So would there be a consideration for the fund to have, say, 50 to 60 percent of its funds into the major big producers like a Cameco, a Kazataprom. Um, even even now, you can certainly look at energy fuels and, of course, maybe a Paladin with exposure to some of the utilities that obviously make a lot of sense. I mean, you know, the utility business is, is a little bit on the boring side for the investors, but uh, there's certainly some options for publicly listed utilities. And then also you have the physical funds, uh, too, that are, you know, fairly, fairly sizable, uh, for the for the fund to look at uranium participation in yellow cake and then maybe the last chunk of that uh, maybe say 30 percent and i'm just using some rough numbers but maybe the final 30 percent of that could be looking at some of the developers like for example i know the fund has next gen um, it has uh, probably some other developers in the mix um, in the smaller holdings and then of course you kind of break down into the explorers uh, which obviously can some of those can be identified and then maybe also cash uh, as part of that mix. What are your what are your thoughts on that and how that positioning sounds for a bull run? So yeah, I think you know anytime uh, what we're trying to do here is not exactly reinvent the wheel. Uh, basically, our approach is a fairly simple market cap weighted approach based on, uh, you know, that nuclear exposed type of company uh, side of things, and then the actual explorers themselves. I think in terms of having bucketing, uh, if an investor did want that side of the equation, I think more of the active approach would be better for them. You know, a fund manager who's looking at, uh, you know, the entire value chain of the business, but wants to allocate based on, uh, you know, where they might see uh, better po uh, pockets of the market going in the future. The challenge for us in a passive index for that is that, just given that this market overall is fairly small on the public side of things, you know, bucketing it according to, uh, you know, certain parts of the value chain and those trading type of vehicles and, you know, funds and stuff like that 
it basically kind of locks us into uh, different position limits and categories. And that's kind of the area that we were trying to, it would potentially be better to kind of allocate according to the private side of things, you know, having managers that might focus on uh, the explorers or some that focus on, you know, that nuclear side and others within the fuels part, maybe some utilities. And so, uh, you know, I think that might make more sense for someone who wants kind of a bucketed approach. But our approach just as a liquid uh, daily traded uh, ETF vehicle was to mainly just get the overall representative market cap of uh, the nuclear and explorer space. Does the fund have some some consideration for secondary listings outside of uh, New York? You had mentioned uh, some of that foreign foreign ownership uh, at Global X and so forth. Um, is there any intention to have some secondary listings, say, in Europe or Australia or Asia somewhere? Um, yeah, I think uh, we haven't, you know, hesitated on some of our other funds of listing, you know, in different markets. Uh, we've uh, listed in uh, countries like Mexico before, uh, Colombia, uh, you know, other countries around the world. And so we haven't uh, been opposed to the idea. I think what we have, you know, needed to see in order to, you know, cross list them on different exchanges has been that there is necessary interest from the investors uh, and not just, you know, a few uh, kind of investors here and there that might want to opportunistically trade it, uh, but actually have organic, you know, investor uh, kind of interest within uh, this fund for longer periods of time. And so, you know, a lot of the interest in our funds has come from Latin America and Central America. And so that's why we made the decision to cross list in some of those countries. Uh, you know, I think eventually in the future, uh, as ETF adoption starts to pick up, which has been, you know, one of the things I think uh, that's kind of uh, also in a beneficial way held back the AUM growth of the fund just because of some of those illiquidity uh, things that we were talking about before with the index. If, uh, you know, eventually ETF ownership were to grow in, say, you know, markets like Asia and markets like Europe, uh, I think we could certainly explore cross-listing them in various markets. Uh, but I think one of the main things we do have to look out for uh, is that overall investor interest for the longer term. How about Kazataprom? Uh, you guys, you guys are, uh, this is newly newly listed there in London. Uh, is there any thought to to add, uh, you know, you already have Cameco in there. Is, is Kazataprom, now that it's uh, listed in London, is that an option uh, for the uh, the company to add to the uh, the mix? Yeah, I would, because uh, uh just given that it's one of the bigger names out there in the space up there with Camco, um, I would expect it to be eventually added to the fund. Uh, the one requirement we do have, though, is having some form of trading history, given that it IPO'd in November. Uh, it has had a limited shelf life. We usually require around six months of trading history in order to uh, add it to the fund. And so we do have uh, semi-annual rebalances on URA. So I would expect that, you know, once it crosses that six-month marker, that it would be added at the next rebalance because it's certainly big enough in terms of size uh, and uh, achieves the investment objective uh, that the fund is looking to achieve. So Rohan, uh, how about uh, outside industry expertise? So when you when the fund's doing research and looking at this stuff, uh, does the fund look at other? Is there some industry consultants you guys might use, or, or how do you how do you kind of go about your research when you guys uh, put together these uh, names and you come up with this stuff to to invest in with the fund? How do you kind of walk us through that? 
Yeah, sure. Um, so we do use Selective as our index provider. Selective is a company that we have a pretty good relationship with. They do. Uh, we've licensed a lot of their index from, indexes from them, given that they're pretty custom in nature. Uh, they're based out of Germany. Um, and they help us out with a lot of, you know, some of our uh, non-off-the-shelf types of indexes that we create, such as a uh, uranium. What we have worked with uh, with on Selective is, uh, you know, given that some of these commodity-based industries that we deal with, such as uranium, uh, do delve into certain markets that are kind of smaller in size and not as well publicized as other industries, like, say, oil or gold or stuff like that, um, they have actually been working uh, with UX Consulting, uh, which is a pretty big, uh, you know, industry leader in terms of researching within this space. Uh, and so when they kind of look at the overall investable universe uh, on, you know, during their rebalance periods in terms of companies that uh, are no longer in existence or companies that now newly uh, have been formed or now newly meet the index requirements. Uh, they do consult with UX Consulting in order to make sure uh, that, you know, we have the entire scope of the universe. So we aren't just going about this, you know, from uh, our end of things. We do have multiple other parties, Selective and UX Consulting, that help with the construction of the index. So with the frequent changes in the fund that's occurred, you know, there's been, as we mentioned before, some concern with, with folks uh, and the fund some folks have have said that the fund is is starting to represent less and less of what they're interested in is there a real drive to create a, a high quality etf at this stage in the market cycle for uranium that expresses the sector in the right way maybe you can clarify for the audience or is the fund just kind of serving a little bit of demand for liquidity and and really just kind of collecting a fee yeah, and I, I would just say that the most of our audience at this point has been in the sector, been looking at the sector pretty pretty heavily, uh, probably since 2017, and so the the group that we have generally is is probably uh, much higher educated than say a general person who had just turned on CNBC and heard a word about uranium, and had no clue about how the uh, cycle worked or or any anything related to market timing or any of that. So I, I certainly the community that we we have uh, certainly is, is well informed of, of kind of what's going on, which as you get to that level, you tend to drive down into setting a strategy that is really kind of set to outperform what, what an ETF can do. And so um, obviously, as you become more of a highly knowledgeable in one sector, such a small sector as uranium, you can start to adjust your strategy to, to really maximize uh, the situation that, that exists. Um, I want to take a back, uh, just a step back for a moment and talk about kind of broad ETFs. Tell us your thoughts about that. Are you of the opinion that, that ETFs are, are kind of the, the future and kind of the way to go? Or are ETFs set up to kind of serve a public vehicle that really is for investors that are maybe less informed, maybe want to take less risk, that think that ETFs might be the way to go? How do you see the, the ETF market going forward? Give us your thoughts on that and, and how people might approach that and what your thoughts are about ETFs. And if, and if ETF is maybe something that only you, uh, you only use ETFs or do you look at individual stocks as well? So, yeah, I mean, the growth of the ETF industry over the past, you know, 15, 20 years has really stemmed from a couple things. Number one was the mutual fund structure and some of the inefficiencies within mutual funds. Uh, the second thing was fees. 
you know, a lot of investors have just grown tired with paying high fees to fund managers that in a lot of cases have underperformed benchmarks. Uh, part of the growth in ETFs that we've seen has been because of the fact that in a lot of cases, mutual funds have been the only game in town. Uh, you know, for U.S. investors, mutual funds have been around uh, for their entire lifetime. Uh, and so it was the, the structure they got used to the most. Uh, I think a lot of investors have been left with a bad taste in their mouth because of some of those big capital gains distributions that can get paid at year end uh, during bull markets. Uh, and also the fact that, um, you know, you have seen a lot of high paid uh, underperforming managers start to become pretty prevalent throughout the space. And so as a result of that, uh, you're starting to see between fiduciary rules that financial advisors have to undertake um, and then just broad fee compression uh, within the overall universe, um, you're starting to see ETFs become more and more popular. Uh, I think the area that we do envision a ton of growth in for ETFs uh, is that self-directed retail platform, uh, but also out of you know financial advisors, high net worth individuals, um, and then the European and Asian markets, which, you know, they've been a little bit more behind on the curve in terms of uh, their adoption of mutual funds. So given that they're starting to buy mutual funds, uh, now all of a sudden ETFs are starting to compete with those mutual funds. And so they're kind of a little bit more uh, ripe in the process to be educated about ETFs and consider it as an investment option. I don't necessarily think that ETFs are uh, you know, for a less sophisticated investor who wants to take uh, less risk, it is for an investor who, you know, is concerned about tax inefficiencies, liquidity, uh, wants to be able to, instead of having to deal with that uh, non-tradability that the mutual fund structure comes with, they want to be able to control their own destiny uh, and be able to do so in a manner in which, you know, they're conscious about fees as well. I think that's, you know, taking a broad step backwards. That's kind of why ETFs have really grown into close to a $4 trillion industry, uh, you know, that's about a third the size of what uh, mutual funds are. But I eventually would, uh, you know, forecast that they will eventually overtake mutual funds in terms of size of assets uh, held under management. Um, in terms of personally myself, uh, I do think the ETF structure is, you know, I use it in my own uh, you know, personal investing side. And then I also think in many cases, uh, it is the preferred vehicle uh, for investors to access a space. Um, it is being used a lot in a, in a lot of different ways than it was so before. I think you're seeing a lot of alternative investment strategies get packaged into ETFs. Active ETFs are also starting to become big. Uh, and then you're seeing, I mean, take our uranium ETF, for example. Uh, previously, these are stocks that would have been bought by mutual fund managers on a one-off basis within a fund. Now we kind of offer that uh, as like a beta access strategy. So that's kind of where you're seeing uh, the growth of the space going forward. It has taken on a lot of hair in terms of the different strategies that are being offered out there and, you know, how... Uh, it isn't just plain vanilla beta access, but now it's kind of going into different industries like fixed income, uh, alternatives, hedge fund replication strategies. And so there has been a pretty big growth in due diligence happening um, across the space uh, at a lot of, you know, wirehouses and banks and, uh, you know, within the retail investment platforms. And so 
the other thing that's also been helping is that there has been a growth in commission-free trading on platforms like Schwab, TD Ameritrade, Fidelity. And so this has enabled the retail investor to, again, uh, access an investment that they want to, uh, that they can control at an even cheaper manner than they uh, you know, were to have been able to, say, 10, 10 15 years ago. I think they have a place uh, in in the in the investment world. I don't think they're everything, but I think they certainly have a place, and and they'll certainly be around, and and they're they're there to serve certain purposes, uh, certainly. And uh, so I think I think it's a good thing to uh, to have around. Um, I, I hope the market doesn't go 100% to ETFs, but I don't think that'll happen. But uh, certainly, it has some some uses, and I I can see kind of both sides of it. So one other thing, moving moving to holdings for just a second, I, I just want to ask you this because it's kind of an odd duck. What's Barrick Gold doing in the holdings? So yeah, this is a we have gotten this question not just in our uranium funds, but also some of our commodity funds. Uh, the question has been, you know, if a company has exposure to uh, a type of commodity like a uranium, even if it's only a small part of their revenue, but they're still a you know a big producer of it on like an absolute nominal basis, uh, should they be included? And so, uh, because Barrick Gold you know has a little bit of exposure to it, that's why we have uh, added it, even though you know it is primarily kind of a diversified gold mining type of company. So. You know, again, this goes back to the liquidity side of things and, you know, uh, kind of behind how do we access a space without kind of diluting the effect there. I guess it does add liquidity to the fund, but does also come at the expense of, well, it's only a smaller portion of the revenues. So, you know, overall, I think it it is representative of the industry, even though it might kind of strike someone as being like an oddball holding, but, you know, it does bring up the other side of the equation, which is, you know, investors could ask, well, Barrick Gold on a nominal, you know, amount could be considered a decent sized producer, I guess, why isn't it in the fund? Okay, well, yeah, I certainly like Mark Bristow and team, but but for purposes uh, such as gold, um, whereas you know the fund has BHP and Rio Tinto, which which obviously provide much more of a uranium byproduct in their operations, more more so than Barrick. So I would I would think that those two global giants, uh, BHP and Rio, would be sufficient. So one more time, uh, Ro- Rohan, uh, let us know why should investors be taking a stake in the Global X URA ETF? What would you say to potential investors listening? Uh, I would break it down into two buckets. So the first bucket, if you're a trader, which is, you know, we have seen a decent amount of assets come in from that, uh, you know, trading side who are looking to get in opportunistic, we have shorter holding periods. It still does represent the beta that you're kind of looking for if you're looking to make a directional market bet. Like, you know, if you envision uranium prices going up, uh, but you don't necessarily want to buy the uranium spot commodity, uh, this could be an interesting way to play it, and it'll give you kind of, you know, the the outlook and the returns that you may be looking for, not kind of that direct leverage side that you may have previously seen with, uh, you know, just the explorers, but it directionally will get you kind of to the place you want to be. That's kind of the way it's approached with a lot of these uh, sort of commodity uh, exposure equity funds, which is, you know, if you want to make a bet on the type of uh, commodity direction that you think it's going to go, uh, then it could be an interesting way to make a bet uh, in the ETF or kind of the mutual fund structure based on that. If you're a longer term investor, 
we we have had a lot of success in attracting uh, longer term investors into this fund, mainly because that theme of clean energy, alternative energy, potential uh, you know sort of ESG guidelines has resonated with a lot of people who are looking to move away uh, from certain oil and gas and fossil fuel and coal type of exposure. Uh, this is a group that, you know, they look at kind of the growth in nuclear reactors and the production uh, of uranium and sort of, you know, the policies that different countries are, are putting into place. And they definitely see the long-term merits behind, uh, you know, holding this for a 5, 10, 15-year period because, you know, could it from a thematic and structural standpoint, given that it's disrupting uh, the traditional fossil fuel industry, uh, you know, potentially outperform that segment of your portfolio over that period of time. And so, you know, if you're an investor who's saying, well, you know, I, I previously have held oil and gas in my portfolio, but now maybe I want to be a bit more, uh, you know, concentrated in terms of where I actually put my money from, you know, an energy standpoint, maybe I want to look at those cleaner side of things. Uh, that's where we've also seen investors carve out a portion of their portfolio and move some money away from oil and gas and into the uh, uranium side of things. So how can investors reach out to the URA fund for more information? Uh, so you can go on to the www.globalxfunds.com website. Uh, we do have research on the space. The fund page is the URA ETF fund page on our website. Uh, it has the fact sheet, um, you know, investment case, uh, research that we've done behind it. Uh, and then you can also explore the index methodology and different information on that. In addition, we also do have a contact us line in which investors can reach out uh, and have their questions answered by members of our team. Rohan, thank you for taking the time today. Uh, we look forward to watching the fund and the sector going forward. Absolutely. Great speaking with you.